welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. Uh, we keep talking about change, having like a set intro, but what do we have a good description for what this podcast is? I, it's Classical Stuff You Should Know. A podcast about <laughs> classical stuff. Is that, that, that is you that, should know by people who know classical stuff that you should know. <laughs> this is I think AJ got very exasperated the last time we did that intro, so I like it. Well, well no, here we are. Not at all. I thought it was great. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I I am kind of against a set intro. I mean, it could, it's just going to turn cheesy. Like yeah. classical stuff you could know, buckle up for knowledge. <laughs> like it's not going to be <laughs> there's no way it's going to be good. I actually prefer that. Why don't we say buckle up for knowledge more often? Speaking of buckling up for knowledge, uh, Graham Donaldson, you are... Well, actually, I probably should introduce everyone who's here. My name is Thomas Magby, Dean of Student Life at Veritas Academy, joined, as always, by Graham Hi. Donaldson. That's me. I'm Graham Donaldson. I am an English teacher. And A.J. Hannenberg. I'm tall. <laughs> yep. That's, <laughs> that is accurate. Uh, and speaking of tall, that that transition didn't work nearly as well. Uh, Graham, you, are, you have a topic for us today. That's right. And this topic is presented with a certain amount of solemnity mm. because we presented it uh, at the Veritas Academy Teachers in Service. We did a live podcast recording of this topic. And due to uh, the dark recesses <laughs> of the internet or whatever, uh, the, it was lost in the bowels of a hard drive. Mm. And oh, it no, is not, it is. That is not what why we lost it. This is not so much solemnity as maybe embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Can I just part? share? I, I turned my microphone backwards. Is that that's where this all started? Yeah, I, I mean, can, but it's an it's an honest mistake. Your microphone looks the same pretty much from the front. I didn't know there the was back. a front and a back. I found that out in front of the thousands of raving fans who watched our live show. It was. It was in the Veritas. And came by choice. Came by choice. <laughs> Academy Ballroom. Yeah. It was the classical stuff you should know gala fundraiser. I, th- yeah, I thought $100 a ticket was a little much. You know but, what? But man. we packed that thing out. We had the classical stuff you should know dancers yeah, performed. Yep, yep. And that was... <laughs> They danced to that opening music we That's played. Right, they did. The we tried to get music. Kanye, but he wouldn't come out of the green room. He found yeah, out yeah. what he was actually there for and yeah. just gave it. But he loved the show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah he had a great class. Kanye, yeah. huge classical, classical stuff man. Classical stuff. Who man. knew? Anyway, but today's topic is, as you know, because you clicked on the link, we are talking about how to read the Bible, but more specifically, um, kind of drawing the difference between the the way that you would be taught at a modern seminary. Uh, if you go to an evangelical seminary or any sort of sort of Bible believing church seminary, they have a specific way of teaching hermeneutics um, versus the classical way of interpreting Scripture um, using this these four methods that were made famous by Dante. Dante talks about this, these four ways of reading the Bible. So today's um, uh, schedule is I'm just going to talk a little bit about sort of modern ways of interpreting Scripture, and then talk about how Dante. Uh, talks about these four ways and seeing if we can sort of see if there are any interesting gaps between us, what we do now, and what uh, Dante has talked about in the medieval way of, of interpreting scripture. Uh, so that's that's the task, that's the plan for today. And we keep using the word hermeneutics, but that's just a fancy word for interpret. Why, yes, Thomas, why don't Bible, you tell Bible us? Do you want to know more about the folk etymology maybe. of the word hermeneutics? Because yeah, hold, really fast. I wasn't intending to call you out for having the microphone backwards. I, I called was, myself out. No, I was accurate. embarrassed because in trying to figure out what was going on, I managed to stop two of our vocal tracks for a long time and didn't realize that I had done it. So we were having this big <laughs> podcast and we were, <laughs> I was the only person that was recording was Magby at that point was, after uh, he had figured out his it microphone. It was a hot pile up there. It was... Um, but, uh, but it, you but know, it was new. It was yeah, our first, was right. first run mm-hmm. of a live show. We didn't have a long time to set up yeah. and test and stuff. Um, so we figured it out. Yeah. So hermeneutics, what does that mean? Sorry. 
the reason we're giggling about this is because in front of our thousands of raving fans, um, I asked Graham to define hermeneutics and he didn't have a definition. And then uh, I supplied a definition. So I like planted my own questions. Sorry sure. about that. It's all right. Uh, so hermeneutics comes from the Greek uh, to translate, to interpret, um, interpretation or explanation. Uh, Aristotle wrote a book um, on uh, which was translated on interpretation. Uh, and then I thought this was interesting. The, the, um, Hermeneutics also kind of sounds like Hermes, and there's there is a connection there also. So Hermes is a messenger, uh, and so we receive messages that, ha- that then have to be interpreted. So that's hmm, what we're cool. doing in hermeneutics. Yeah, and so the, um, this is the way that I was taught it in seminary, and from what I understand, this is kind of the the thing that uh, if your church is putting on a how to interpret the Bible, how to read Scripture, this is often the kinds of method that they go to, and there's essentially three main steps or um, or sort of Three main steps with two smaller sub-steps. Uh, sub so the first thing that you would do if you were reading a passage, and we're going to look at a specific passage as we go through this, is the historical context. Step number one is saying, okay, what does this actually say word for word and to the people that it was written to? So if you, you're you trying— You can't just pull stuff out of the middle of nowhere. That's Just right. like you can't do with normal books. Like you couldn't go mm-hmm. right into the middle of Harry Potter and be like, he's talking about the French-Polynesian War. That's right. <laughs> You need to sort of say, okay, what is the context? Who is this? Who is the audience? Who is this written to? Why is it being written? Uh, and that's your first step of interpretation. So you could maybe call that a historical way of reading it or just looking and saying uh, the way that we talk about it in our leadership class is what does the Bible say? Um, and so that's historical context. The next step that has to be done, and this is done in various degrees of, of uh, difficulty or difference based on Old Testament and New Testament is how different is the cultural uh, gap between us today and the original audience. So if you're reading a letter, one of Paul's letters, the cultural difference is somewhat smaller because Paul is writing a letter to Christians in a church, and we are Christians in a church reading his letter. So yes, there are some cultural differences, um, but uh, that is quite different than, say, when you're going back and reading Exodus or Numbers. And it is the word of God through Moses to a specific group of ethnic people chosen by God. And then how do you interpret that for us as Christians today? So we need to, we need to sort of plot out the differences, the cultural differences. And this is frankly kind of where just having to do research comes in. Commentaries, um, um, you have to learn a little bit about the ancient Hebrews. You have to learn a little bit about the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans, um, uh, the first century world, uh, the, the sixth century BC world, these kinds of things. Your, um, your undergrad degree was in theology? Uh, my undergrad degree was in a program called Christianity and Culture, which was at uh, St. Michael's College at the University of Toronto, which was essentially like an, a liberal arts degree. Uh, it was the Catholic school, so all my professors were monks, which was fun, and they Ooh, thought I was cool. Catholic. And, um, <laughs> and did, apparently— you didn't, you didn't correct them? I, I did, kind oh. of, um, but uh, part you, of— the, All you did was go to be like, well, we're going to go to— Catholic things because you're Catholic and you're like, well, and, I'd be like, and that's all you gave him was C. just, that was your, um, but I had one friend, I don't know if he was a friend, I had one guy in class, he was a Jesuit or he was in training to be a Jesuit oh, cool. and apparently part of your training to be a Jesuit is to try to get other people to be a Jesuit. Mm. So he saddled up to me and was like, man, you really like are into this stuff. You ever thought about like dedicating your life to <laughs> God? And I was like, I have actually, Already yeah, have I have. Uh, and then, what, and then he said, so what church do you go to? And I said, "All right, this is the time." So I, so I said, "I go to." It was like uh, one of uh, it was an Acts twenty nine church that was run by former Pentecostals, 
And so I told him that I went to a evangelical uh, quasi-Pentecostal church, and he never talked to me again. <laughs> Um, not out of any, I think he just realized this was a lost cause for the Jesuits. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so third, so the first two steps, context and difference. So the context, the historical difference. And then the third step is, can you take what is being written and, and summarize it into some kind of principle? It's not so much that you're, you're, you're universalizing the text, but you're, you're trying to boil it down to some kind of principle that the, that the text is saying. So, um, and this requires some more uh, skill than just historical uh, investigation. This is where, interp- where, where you can sort of uh, have um, difference of opinions and then you need to corroborate your principle. So if we were explaining this to 10th graders, the first step would be what does it say? And the second step would be what does it mean? Uh, and then this is where you need to have – so this is where more theology comes in because you need to back it up with other pieces of scripture or whatnot. Fourth steps are very simple. Yeah, connect it to Christianity as it's already established. That's right. This means we should hurt the poor. Like, that's probably not going to be a Mm -hmm. principle. Yeah. Um, um, Yeah, so when when, when it's talking about in the Old Testament, God saying that he's going to destroy the heathen nations, um, you can't just say, all right, well, God's into destroying heathens. Uh, Let's get after it. (laughs) Yeah, let's buckle up. No, uh, uh, so then you need to do some some more uh, principle stuff with the whole of Scripture. The fourth step is a really quick one. This is, does the new covenant of the New Testament change the interpretation of this Old Testament truth? So if if you're reading something in the New Testament, you skip this step. If you're reading something in the Old Testament, you have to ask the question, does what Christ institutes with the new covenant, uh, uh, with the gospel message, does it change something of the Old Testament? So, for example, we no longer, as Christians, follow the old uh, ceremonial uh, rituals of Judaism. We don't eat kosher. We don't. Um, we're, we don't consider things ritually unclean. We're generally cool with, you know, bacon, bacon and tattoos yeah. and lobsters. Yeah, um, lobsters were a thing. Lobsters were a thing. That? You cannot eat shellfish. Yeah. Huh. Um, anyway, and cheeseburgers. Because you can't have meat. Because you can't together. have meat and cheese together. Yep. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yep. Oh man, I know <laughs> that is a shame. I all, um, all of a sudden have this deep sorrow for everyone that had to follow the Old Testament law. <laughs> yeah. um, and then the fifth one is application. So take that principle and try to uh, think of a concrete real-life example of where you can apply this into your life. No more um, P. Terry's. Mm. Yeah, and then exactly. That would be the application of that. Um, okay, so we're going to go through a little example of Exodus. Where you, we're we're going to take something from the book of Exodus uh, and go through these uh, these five steps and, and just sort of show how you would try to interpret this for our, our modern life. So if you have your Bibles, listeners. Okay. <laughs> Are we actually going to do the thing that we, like before, <laughs> well, Graham and I were here a little bit before Thomas was. And just, no, we're, we're not doing the thing. We can't do the we thing. We have to do the thing. Can it's do, awesome. It maybe it can be like an Easter egg or something on the, on the site, but not mm-hmm. while we're reading the, not while we're reading the podcast. While I wasn't here? So we, I, I was like, hey, I wonder what it'd be like with some reverb on your voice. As we, so he read the scripture in this commanding tone, and then I added <laughs> reverb, and then I dropped it five semitones. Yeah. So it sounds like <laughs> the voice the, of God. The actual voice of God, yeah. which is really cool. I'm still, I'm not settled whether or not we're mocking, we're, we're, we're making a mockery of it or not. Yeah. Um, oh, man. Now you make me feel all guilty about <laughs> it. It was really cool. I'm. All right. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 21, starting in verse 28. And when you, if you look at it and read it, it is this is one of those uh, civic and uh, uh, laws about how to deal with your, with your animals. So I'm going to read it out. 
28. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, as, uh, and it had been made known to his owner, and he had not kept it confined, so that it had killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. Uh, whether it has gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If an ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So you read this and you say, okay, what does, what does something like this in Exodus have anything, does it have anything to say to sort of the modern Christian life? Well, if your ox tends mm-hmm. to thrust with its horn, well, you, you got to watch out for that. Thrusty yeah. ox. <laughs> um, so then we go, mm, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go through this. So, <laughs> Sorry. That's unraveling so quickly. Um, Exodus 20. So, yeah. The first step is historical context. So what is this thing actually saying? Uh, what are some of the actual uh, laws in here? So an ox that's in the habit of gore of attacking people, um, if it gores someone, then the master is responsible for it. Uh, you may be coming to more of the principle. Oh, wasn't that the... Yeah, but it, well, he's it, you gotta make, literally you, saying you gotta that make if, if yeah. the ox has not been in a habit and gores somebody, the master, uh, the the owner is acquitted. If the ox, but the ox is not acquitted. The ox is not acquitted. Yeah. I don't think the ox fares well in any of these laws. If uh, but if the if the ox uh, has a history and, the, and everyone and the guy knew about it, then he will be put to death. Mm-hmm. Is what it says. Um, and then also, if it gores a kid, uh, it's the same judgment than if it gores an adult. And then it says if it gores one of your servants, there's a there's a monetary payout. That's what and, it says. And then it says you can if he wants to get out of this whole death penalty thing, you can, can impose upon him. Yeah, they can impose life. upon him like, all right, instead of killing you, we you know, government needs thirty thousand dollars or That's whatever right. it was. Um, okay. And then the next step you would do is you would say, All right, what are the major differences between the context between the people who would be listening to this and people today? No, we don't. I don't own any ox. Yeah, fewer of us own oxen. Although I'm, it would not surprise me if there is one or two students at Veritas <laughs> who live out in the country that are like, "Well, this makes perfect sense to me. I can totally relate to this passage." Um, as they scratch at their ox scar. As their ox scar. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Um, yeah, oxen, and then with the verse thirty-two, uh, the male or female servants. Uh, the other translations have this as male or female slaves. Um, so this is also a, a big cultural difference between the Old Testament and modern times. Um, uh, I most, mean, there is a lot of slavery today. It's, it's just true. not maybe as overtly as it was in and the United States. And there are just very different cultural uh, um, differences between slavery of the Old Testament and slavery of the types of slavery that we have nowadays. Right. Different, um, different ballgame altogether. And so then um, we would have to go in and do a big in-depth – we would have to do more historical research of the difference – to to, under, to be able to draw a principle from this, uh, if we were talking in regards to regards to slavery, which we're not going to do. And then the third one is is principle. So how can we sort of boil this down to a principle? And Thomas, you were kind of getting to it with your uh, with what you're saying earlier. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so what I said before is about an ox, but I guess a principle more broadly is that um, owners are responsible for their stuff, maintaining their stuff. Yeah. Like and um, and they're responsible for knowing. They have to like know the tendency of their. They also so, have, like, so like I have a dog, and if mm-hmm. my dog is in the habit of biting people, and mm-hmm. I take it out for a walk around 
an elementary school and it attacks someone. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of on me. If you, if you, I mean, that's isn't that kind of the the law? Like if you knew your dog was bad and you didn't yeah. do anything, you yeah. aren't then like it's negligence. I'm liable. Yeah. If right. you lent me a chainsaw and mm-hmm. it was completely rusting and falling apart and the chain's about to fall off, um, and you knew about it, or it's been pointed out to you before and you lent it to me and that thing whipped off, took my arm off. Uh, you would be responsible for that. Whereas if you gave me a brand new chainsaw that was that was great. Or it had served you for years. It had and years. served you for years and you kept meticulous care of it and then that chain whipped off and cut my arm off arm off. That's different. The principle says that you would not be liable. the principle of scripture says that Thomas should not be liable for that, but Thomas should be liable for his negligence of his stuff. So that's kind of the principle. Um, there's another principle in regards to the worth of children. Equal to equal uh, to, to adults. adults. And I mean we may say, well, yeah, duh. Um, but this isn't necessarily a true thing. We can use this text to say, all right, look, um, a child has as much worth in the eyes of God's moral law as an adult. They are just as much made in God's image and should have the same uh, law applied to them as adults do. Um, so uh, that's something that you can that you can draw from that. The next step is New Testament, Old Testament. Is there anything in the New Testament that changes uh, this in the Old Testament? I don't really think don't so think because so. we're talking about moral law, which doesn't change. If and this was cleanliness laws or, or civic laws about um, about like what Levites are going to do, then or you would cheeseburger mm, laws. Yeah, yeah. I'm please call them cheeseburger laws. Yeah. 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 Oh man, I yeah. Uh, I've been I've been towing the line on mm-hmm. irreverence this whole podcast. <laughs> I'm so sorry, um, but I see. Yeah, I think we we know today that that principle still carries right. If yeah. you, if I had something and. It, there was an accident and it really hurt you. Well, if I had known about it, then you'd, you'd have right to be angry. But if I was like, oh my gosh, that's the first time it's ever done it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no reason for you to be mad. You mm-hmm. might be a little bit grumpy that, mm-hmm. you know, your arm's off or whatever. Mm-hmm. But. And then when we go to application, uh, we were even thinking of, of examples right now, like the Thomas Chainsaw thing, or if your dog escapes and bites a kid, if it has been a loving, happy dog its whole life and it was like, pillar of the neighborhood or whatever yeah yeah <laughs> does service yeah, civic member yeah like yeah, yeah. good garden soup on the holidays and uh and then people would they would not come to you and say thomas like how could you let this happen uh we would just see it as a sort of bestial accident or whatever um but but if you had like a nasty dog and everyone knew it and people were scared to walk by your house eliza is a very good dog yeah, i just want to be very clear on this please don't malign my dog um my so do- that's our dog looks like a goblin but it's very sweet um <laughs> So uh, your dog, di- oh my goodness, Ginger does look like a goblin. So yeah. for, for those listeners who don't know, you know, don't know us ginger. personally, we have a dog that's a little Boston Terrier and she is as ancient, ancient as the sands. Yeah. Like she has been around <laughs> forever. She's love dogs. Yeah, she, she just will, she keeps on ticking. I felt her heartbeat last night mm-hmm. and I kid you not, it's like glunk, 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 <laughs> glunk, gadunk. <laughs> It's this. It's so dog. incredibly irregular, and now she shivers when she breathes. Oh my goodness! <laughs> anyway, she's that... missing an eye yeah. on one side, mm-hmm. and then her other eye has cataracts, and it's all milky and bloodshot. Because mm-hmm. so she she honestly is the most terrifying little she's goblin. Yeah. She's blind and she's she's deaf now, isn't she? Mostly yeah. deaf. And you've taken that dog in to be put to sleep about three or four times <laughs> we've, now. We've and said every time the her. vet calls back and it's like, "Well, you can pick up your dog. We gave it a shot, and it seems to be doing okay." Yeah, she keeps on trucking along, and I was like, "Her heart is barely <laughs> so functioning." It's like a car that's trying to start. So uh, hang on there, Ginger. That's All right. Anyway, so then this is so this is what you would do. So um, now, uh, if we were wanting to build a whole theology around what does the Bible say in regards to our useful objects like tools and pets, 
and and the stuff that we own that we that we and how we interact with neighbors this is just one example and we would have to go through as much scripture as we could um, find on this topic find all of these principles stack them up next to each other and say do we see common themes so that we can say the biblical um, principles about our tools or our our things is this and here are all of these various uh, examples from scripture that we can use to corroborate that claim and this is what you're doing when you're doing biblical theology if you say what does the bible say about money you can't just find one part of scripture that says one thing about money and ignore the rest and ignore the rest you would have to find everything do these steps come to step number three where you have the principle application is is how you would apply it to your life but those principles are the big thing and then see is there a common thread of a principle regarding money through all of scripture or are there many different threads that are woven together to say here's the picture that the bible says about any topic money controversial ones like like marriage uh and uh um um yeah, pick your topic, and this is the way that you would be able to derive a biblical understanding of it. If you, so, just, if you just pick one scripture and say, this is what the Bible says about marriage, um, you can kind of torture that thing, uh, or uh, about money or whatever. Torture sounds about right for marriage. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> marriage is great. Uh, so to, to reorient us, we are in step two of the typical like seminary way of understanding scripture. Well, this is, that, that was right. it. That was the five steps right there. That was context. The historical context, step one. The cultural difference, step two. The third one is deriving the principle. The fourth one is, is it different between the New and the Old Testament? And then the fifth one is, how then do you apply it to your life? Those are the five steps. And that goes personal. Like, I maybe should do something about that chainsaw that I know. Mm -hmm. i got to stop blending that thing out because one of these days it's going to— You can literally say the Bible, the principles of God's word to me is that I need to take care of my things. That's a, that's a that is something that is theologically defensible from this passage. Okay, that's cool. Um, and so then, a systematic theology or a biblical theology is take all of your topics that you can think of, and then find all of the ways that Scripture speaks to these things in their principle, and then build up a uh, 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 a reading, if you will, of what Scripture says about these topics. And this is somewhat incumbent on all believers to do. Um, uh, going through and and if you're actually saying like. I'm thinking about vocation. What does vocation mean? What does the Bible say about the job that I have? Well, you could go to Jeremiah where he says, like, I've got a plan for you. What's that passage? Jeremiah 29. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do, you, oh, Jeremiah, do you know it off by heart? Uh, uh, for I know the plans uh, I have for you, plans to prosper you. Not Isn't that that one? That's the one. 29, 11, I think. And I mean, like, that is the chosen text of every Christian small business ever, right? Yeah. Like, uh, and people take that passage and they say, "I'm good. this passage is what God is wanting for my life is that he's going to, like— Prosper me. Um, it, prosper me because I am someone who loves him and works for him. Yep. That is not a false thing, but that is a narrow thing in terms of Scripture because God can also use our material uh, um, poverty to also improve us spiritually. And he's not talking about your business. He's talking about people who are thrown into into exile because of their sins. Yeah. So um, anyway, that, so this is why you need to go through all of Scripture. Or you can just sort of proof text it. Yeah. I was going to say, so you—, you, you Jeremiah 29 is about uh, people of Israel being in exile, and then God tells them to buy land mm-hmm. while they're in exile. Mm-hmm. And then the reason to do that is because God's intention, <clears throat> sorry, with that is to um, grow their wealth. But again, there, that 
um, that is historically specific. Like there's the actual story. There's the literal sense of it. I guess we're going to get to in a second. Mm-hmm. So, but there could be there could be a spiritual aspect to it. Like that could have some uh, relevance and relationship to us. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to only be that historical fact. That's true. And yeah, and um, uh, and we'll yeah, and this and is we'll where Dante comes in. Yeah. Just in regards to proof texting, I remember I saw a a gym. It was a mixed martial arts uh, gym where you go and you know go you fight in the cage. And it was run by a Christian guy, and on his website, uh, at the top of the banner, it said, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. And then there was this little video of him pummeling um, somebody, presumably with the strength of Christ. Um, <laughs> and, and then I was like, okay, I mean, I understand what he's trying to say. He's saying that, like, you know, uh, well, he's essentially making some sort of statement that, like, God is his strength, and he can use that to his physical advantage in the ring. To throttle some dudes. To throttle yep. some dudes. But what Paul's talking about is that God can strengthen us when we are specifically being persecuted yep. for our faith. Right. So in the context of, so if you don't do step number one, talk about context, you can take a passage and say like, well, this just means that God's going to get me jacked uh, yep. so I can beat somebody up. Ain't yeah. nobody persecuting that yeah. guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so um, that's sort of the modern way. That's kind of the typical uh, thing that most churches or most seminaries, um, at least in the Protestant evangelical world, would turn to that kind of method of, of interpretation of scripture. But classically, there was more, and we're going to talk a little bit about that more uh, today. So for Dante, um, uh, he was sort of the one that wrote about this and made it famous, but what Dante was writing about was something that everybody had been doing. So Dante writes about it, but it seems like that this was something that was just in the water of how you read books and how you read scripture. And uh, it's his famous sort of, there's four ways to interpret a text. Um, So he's got these four ways. The first way is the literal way, and what Dante actually says in, shoot, I can't remember. It was one of his, it's not in the comedy, it's in one of his other little Vita books. Nuova? Uh, which one? New Life? I don't think so. I don't think it's that one. Maybe it is. Um, he says the first step is literal. And so if you take a passage of the Bible, it's what it literally says. So he said, this is Dante saying, this is the sense. He says, the, um, yeah, these are four senses of, of interpreting scripture. He says, this is the sense that does not go beyond the surface of the letter. So this would be, what are the laws? What is the context? This kind of encapsulates everything about That's history right. and all that so stuff. So if you're reading uh, the story of the, the exodus of the Jews, uh, when the Jews leave Egypt to go into the, the Holy Land, or to go into their chosen land, um, Promised land. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> Holy land. We got there eventually. Land, you know, yeah. I think, isn't it called all three? Schnazzy yeah. land. Schnazzy. Um, <laughs> Not that I think one. that one might be. Um, yeah. The promised land. Uh, when you're reading that, you're literally saying the Jews left Egypt and went to the promised land. Um, well, not directly. Not directly. Was... They wandered around for yeah. a bit. Um, then number two is the next step of reading this is there's the allegorical way of reading this. And what Dante says of that is he says that this is the sense where truth is hidden beneath a beautiful fiction. That's what Dante says. And um, this is where you are reading it for something sort of more deeper underneath the surface. So what this would, is where like symbolism would pop up and yeah, metaphor. So if you were saying, if you're reading the, the story of the Exodus, God's people going from uh, Egypt to the Holy Land or to the Promised Land, what would be the allegorical reading of it? Maybe God... You know, God is the one whose strength sets us free. Maybe? Yeah, some symbolism or there. God calls us to go from um, a place. Well, the one that Dante talks about with this is God goes calls us to c- go from a place of of sin and bondage 
like slaves in Egypt, to freedom and new life through the power of God. So God's power brings them into the Holy okay. Land. So that's the allegorical reading. So what this wasn't just historically true of the Jews. This is allegorically the same as the life of the church. That make sense? Yeah. And then the third reading is the moral reading. Um, and what Dante says of the moral reading, he says that this is the sense that teachers should uh, intensely seek to discover through the scriptures for their own profit and for that of their pupils. Um, so the moral reading would be, how would you take this story and um, apply it to your temporal life here on earth? Um, and specifically drawing out principles for your, your own life and for those of your students that's right. To follow little moral principles. So little moral principles that for for your interactions with other with other people. So um, um, I, I don't know what would be one the example of the moral reading of. Um, so the chainsaw example from before. Yeah, and uh, that's a little more practical than mm-hmm. this. But so maybe the more so the moral reading of the passage we had before was we should take care of our things. Mm-hmm. We should know mm-hmm. our possessions. We should know the things we have control over. I think I think also it's maybe a little bit of helping your students to indwell the story. And there can be a bunch of them. For example, when Moses confronts Pharaoh, you can say, look, Moses did this even though he was bad at talking and he wasn't really, you know, super famous at the time. He was a farmer and, or a shepherd and didn't really have a whole lot going for him. And, but with the power of God, mm-hmm. even he was able to confront someone powerful and strong and intimidating. And even at that time, probably rumored to be a god. Mm-hmm. So he he was given that power through Christ. And so you can say, look, you can depend on that same sort of thing. So helping them sort of indwell mm-hmm. the stories the way I've sort of seen it. Um, something that uh, Dante also says about the moral reading is saying that this could also, if you individualize it. So you were once the, the slave and now you are free. Um, so you were once in the grief of sin and now you live in, in God's grace in freedom. So... Um, because of that freedom in God's promised land, you are now living in the new life of the church and you have the freedom to be able to do acts of mercy and charity and that kind of thing. And so when you read this story of the Jews, you can be thinking about your own moral life here on earth. And, yeah. mm-hmm. I was just trying to flip through my notes. The, the note I wrote for this one is that mor- the moral way of reading scripture is, a- is an answer to the question of what does this teach about action? Yes. So, um, and then the last one is called the anagogical. And the anagogical is... Which still sounds like a frog climbed down your throat yeah. and you're trying to create it out. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, yes. And then this is uh, what some people have called the spiritual reading of it. Um, and what Dante... Oh, it's often... Um, yeah, it, it's... Some people even think about it as like the prophetic reading or yep. the future end of time reading. And what Dante says of the anagogical is that this is the, uh, where the text is expounded in a spiritual sense. Um, it signifies by means of the things signified part of the supernatural things of eternal glory. Not supernatural, super, uh, supernatural things of eternal glory. So I don't know what signified by means of the things signified, or signifies by means of the things signified means. <laughs> it's, uh, I think it could have just said signified. Things, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but it's part of thinking about your soul and the spiritual life. So with this one, one day our souls on this temporal existence on earth will be brought into God's kingdom in heaven. Um, so that would be this, the, the uh, anagogical reading of the, of the Exodus story. An- another word that sometimes gets thrown around is the eschatological. Yes, so that, the end of times. Yeah, that same idea of that it's um, end of times. It's um, the, 
the word anagogical is pointing to a climb or an ascent or uh, uh, pointing us back to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's why I'm just trying to think of that supernatal was a funny word for to be thrown in there, but mm-hmm. yeah. It makes sense. Um, it sounds like something having to do with pregnancy. It does, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Or like a really amazing pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. four months. It was so <laughs> short. It was, it was really great. Supernatal. Yeah. Um, so do we then, know what that means? Have we given a definition? I, I think it's just the old uh, schnazzy, the old way of talking about supernatural. Really? This, I think so. All right, I, I will investigate. Yeah. Continue. Um, and so then Dante also talks about charting and plotting these things on like a graph. So the literal is the looking to the past, where you look at the historical context. The allegorical is where you're looking to, you're looking ahead. So what does this, what does this text signify about the future? Uh, for Dante, literally reading the Exodus was supposed to be a hint of what God was going to do with Christ in history. That the Exodus was like a type, it was an example yeah. of the token, which was Jesus coming into history and saving us through his death. Um, crossing because of God's power, crossing over into new life. Think of the the um, the um, parting of the Red Sea, all that kind of stuff. So you have the historical looking back. You've got the allegorical looking forward. You have the moral, which is looking down. It's go. It's looking down into the sort of the individual life of the individual person, that moral life. And then the anagogical is the looking up. Where you're 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 anticipating, or you're looking at the at the heavens, um, and even well. Anyway, well, you, so you, you use the word spiritual before, and so sometimes these are grouped in two ways. So the literal is always kept separate. It, the literal is the literal way to read it, mm-hmm. and then those back three are called the spiritual way of reading scripture. So the spiritual includes the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical. Mm-hmm. And that uh, this was mentioned in service. And what I find helpful about this approach to reading scripture is that. With the literal, there is what the author at that moment in time is writing. So someone in the Old Testament would not know the way that Christ would come, would not know the sure. way that he would fulfill all of the mm-hmm. prophecies of the Old Testament. Uh, so, But an Old Testament prophet can still hear from God and write those things down, write those experiences down. But what we have the benefit of seeing being um, after Christ is we can know how that Old Testament passage pointed to Christ. That's what the allegorical method does. Mm-hmm. We can know how the moral law is brought to perfection in the new covenant. That's the moral reading. And then anagogical, um, uh, in that same way, we, we see what happened in the Old Testament, how Christ redefines it, and how that still points us toward a future, because yeah. we have not arrived yet. That's right. And um, so it's on that, so the, those final three or those other three readings of the allegorical, moral, and anagogical are where um, sort of faith in actually believing this thing takes place. You can yeah. study the historical context of this. And in fact, most religious studies programs at any secular university that talks about the Bible, or you will have the professor we'll say, will say, it. what we are concerned with is the literal reading. What actually happened and what did this mean for the people? And if you want to apply it to the, your life, well, like do it on your own time, because that's not what, what we're doing here as a historical reading of scripture. Uh, and I think a lot of students or a lot of Christians go off to these kinds of seminaries or these classes, see that, and it's um, this incredibly like faith shaking thing is just to have the one, the one reading or saying that this is the only way to read this thing is the literal. And the other three are for whatever reason discounted because they are based on like 
actually buying it, <laughs> right? Like yeah. based on faith. But you also you get an example <laughs> at in service of kind of the opposite mistake of some people who jump to an anagogical view before they do the literal. That's right. So um, yeah, so uh, if you think about that graph that we did, we have the four points uh, in the Middle Ages. They associated those four different kinds of reading with f- the four major apostles. So um, Peter, James, John, and Paul. So stick with me here. Um, so the literal reading, the historical reading, the reading that has to do with things that have come before, in the Middle Ages, they associated that with James because James was associated with the, the apostle that was associated with tradition and with um, how tradition influences our actions. I don't know if I have enough of my own understanding of just the book of James or the medieval understanding of James to be able to speak more than that than just to say that's what they believed in the Middle Ages. Um, uh, when I think of the book of James, I just think about, like, tame your tongue. That's mm-hmm. the only thing I can think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the Middle Ages, James was strongly associated with the ancient Jewish tradition and just tradition in general. Whereas opposite of James is Paul. Um, Paul is associated with the allegorical reading of Scripture um, and the freedom that we have in Christ. We are not completely bound by tradition. There is freedom to look at the things gone past and say, this signifies something different about the future. So when Paul looks at the, um, uh, this is the sort of the conversion that Paul had to have about, about food, right? When, when um, Paul looked at the tradition of the cleanliness rituals, and then God had to come to him and say, why are you saying things are unclean that I have called clean? Paul had to recast, how do you interpret the Old Testament in light of the new gospel? Uh, and Paul is the allegorical theologian of the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, they considered Paul to be the sort of allegorical reading of Scripture. Um, and there's a bunch of examples of what Paul does this. Um, the Jews are slaves to the law, and they're like Hagar. The Christians are the free heirs of God's kingdom, and they are like Sarah, and or they are like the, 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 the children of Sarah. That's an allegorical reading of the Old Testament. Um, the moral, how we deal with this life, is Peter, um, who was, for the Middle Ages, the head of the church. He was the, the, uh, the authority, the person who would say, do this and don't do this. Uh, uh, here is how, if you, here are the rules that the church puts out, and if you live by this, it will be better for your soul. Um, that is closely associated with Peter, the moral reading. And then John, with his mystical uh, gospel of John, and John's associated with the, the one who has the relationship of, of love with Jesus, um, this personal relationship of love, and um, uh, has the more, like, um, um, gospel that's, that of, of mysticism, the apocalypse of, uh, of John, the revelation. Am I, am I right on that? Yes. Beloved disciple of the yes. revelation? Okay. Um, the mystical revelation of John. He's associated with the anagogical. Um, so you take all these four together, and um, and you're supposed to do all four. Otherwise, if you overbalance on one or the other, you can come to uh, to problems. And that's what we taught. And yeah, and so that's what uh, so th- what you're referring to. Is the, is the shape supposed to be in a cross? Is that it is supposed to be in a cross? So James, yes. James Paul. Peter, John, and mm-hmm. those kind of two axes are laid on yeah. top of each and, other. Yeah, um, and uh, this was something that has been, was sort of made famous or explained by um, 
a Swiss theologian named Hans Urs von Balthasar. <laughs> Such a good name. Um, and he Which was, is what I'm naming all of my RPG characters. <laughs> and he one. was, so he was a, a Catholic Prepare theologian. For the necromancer. Catholic theologian. <laughs> and what he calls this is the Christological constellation, uh, which if you want to Google it and learn more about it. But if you take any one of those things and do it um, to the detriment of the others, you get some, some terrible imbalances. So if you just... Um, if you just emphasize tradition, you miss out on the freedom we have in the gospel. If you just emphasize the freedom, you can miss out on, on the tradition that we are a part of that can form us and shape us. If you emphasize authority, um, it can just be a do this, don't do this. And if you emphasize your own personal relationship with God, um, then what are you going to do when the church says the way you're living is wrong? You can be like, yeah, maybe for you, but God tells me that I'm great because that's what I want, <laughs> right? And so you can have these imbalances. But speaking of those imbalances, so then, so does a new believer then have to go and like, so when you describe biblical theology, it sounds like such a pain. I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm going to start with Genesis and I'm going to read through Revelation to understand, um, pick a moral issue. I don't mm-hmm. know, murder. What does the Bible say about murder? I have to read all those things. Uh, is, is that is that what every Christian needs to do? Does every Christian need to go through and develop their own biblical theology for all these different topics? I mean, to yes and no. So I think that you – we don't need to recreate or redesign the faith every generation. There is – we – excuse me – can go back and look and read the, the writings of people who have done this as well, and that can be tremendously helpful. Um, Thomas, I mean – you are a Thomistic. Hey. You, uh, you love uh, Thomas, Aquinas. Uh, Thomas Aquinas. I mean, it's your namesake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had an uh, economics teacher in high school who called me Thomas Aquinas, and I had no idea who that guy was for the entire year of my senior year. And so then I finally there you go. Was yeah. were, you, were you named after Thomas Aquinas? Uh, no. Uh, 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 I believe I was named after the, the doctor from Bewitched. So uh, here we are. This has been really fun. Hi, guys. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. Um, well, anyway, moving no, on. No, you, you know what I mean? So like you... In, but he's not the Bible, but, I mean, he is someone who spent an entire yeah. lifetime doing this. You can go, you can read that, and that can help you influence the Bible. So I don't think that um, – I think it would be naive just to say that every Christian needs to go off by themselves and just them and their Bible are supposed to figure this whole thing out because right. you have the life of the church and you have the life of those who've come before you and mentors and people who disciple you and that kind of thing. But you do want to be – I still think that people need to be biblically literate and you need to yeah. be able to say, wait a minute – well, we've, we've talked about cultural blind spots on this podcast before, and if we're living in a cultural blind spot in regards to a certain moral issue, and we go and we do an in-depth reading of the Bible uh, on that moral issue, and it stands in opposition of the cultural blind spot, um, then we have a decision to make uh, as believers. Uh, what are we going to What are we going to to stand up for? And um, the truth is, is that anybody you, you people can torture the Bible to say what they want. Um, yep. and, uh, I think it's a tremendously enriching thing to actually be able to read theology that you strongly disagree with and theology that you actually think is bad theology. Like they are not applying the method properly, um, to be able to strengthen your own faith on, on a, spe- on a particular issue. Yeah. Um, so for fun, I asked for, um, a book on, uh, Karl Barth's Introduction to the Romans. Oh, good heavens. Um, for Christmas, and I've been reading it every, little bits of it every morning as I make breakfast. Just because you love pain. Well, because I remember, no, no, because when I read him in, in, in seminary, I remember being very interested in a lot of it, but thinking like I didn't, I didn't 
by a lot of his conclusions. And I couldn't really put a finger on why I didn't, and I didn't have enough leisure time to be able to to go into that. For those for those of you who don't know who Karl Barth is, he is a theologian in the last hundred years, I yep. think. Yep. Yeah, and he wrote prolifically. Mm-hmm. He's probably the the person who wrote the most on theology. He wrote his big his church, huge huge work was yeah church, church dogmatics, and it is forty volumes, and even. Karl Barth theologians, like people who read Karl Barth and understand Karl Barth, it's about seven minutes a page (laughs) for them. That's the average reading speed. And (laughs) it is just the super dense, ultra difficult. So if you're like, I'm not sure it's possible for actually read through human people to read through church dogmatics. I I wonder if he just, it's what he liked to do. Mm -hmm. And that was like his video games was writing (laughs) theology. But this, but this sort of highlights, like there are different ways to read the Bible. So for example, when I'm reading Church Dogmatics and I'm reading and I'm comparing it to Romans, I'm interacting with Scripture in a very different way. I would say a theological way, uh, maybe an allegorical way, than I would be when I'm taking time and I'm praying through Scripture. Or first thing I do, I wake up in the morning and I read I read the Bible in a personal devotion way, um, uh, trying to commit my day to God using His Word to guide me. But that's not the only way you can read the Bible. There's sure. sort of more of a I don't know, academic way of theology um, that that I would be doing when I'm reading it alongside a commentary. So um, anyway, to make a long story short, those are, as we've talked about the modern way, and then we've talked about the sort of the classical way. And are, are, are there significant gaps or are we just talking about the same thing? The, we're talking about similar things for mm-hmm. sure. So the Context lines up with the literal reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, the differences between the two... Would also be the literal reading. Yeah. Some and sort of historical. So the principle, does that get me to the moral? Have we jumped over the allegory? The principle can get you to the moral, and I think you also need to do a little bit of allegory sometimes to, to get a principle, to derive a principle. Yeah. So the analogical um, is missing? I think so. But that's not necessarily true, because there are people that, like... They only read scripture for the yeah. They only read scripture for the like. What is the what is God specifically saying to me? Wrenched from all context yeah. about Which, the eternal future. About the yeah. eternal future. About something. And I'm of two minds whether I think that that is like necessary for the hearts of believers, or if I think that it is like dangerous for the Ooh. hearts of believers. I, I don't know. I think we. We tend to be grounded as Christians in the here and now, and sometimes even to our detriment, thinking that we, working for poverty is the most important thing we can possibly do. And certainly the scripture says we should do that. We should help the poor. We should help give our time. We yeah. should help the widow and orphan. Like that is, that is what we're supposed to do. But maybe thinking about our eternal end brings a healthy perspective to the things that we're doing. Yep. Mm-hmm. And even even when I work with my students in class, it's easy to get bogged down in the details. I've got 30 emails to do. I've got five tests. I've got all of these things that I have to accomplish. But then reattuning that thinking, okay, what is scripture saying about my ultimate end as a Christian, mm-hmm. their ultimate ends as Christian? How much does this test really have to do with their eternal life? And how can I help to make that test bless them in a way that moves them towards their possible end, mm-hmm. right? So I think maybe it's more of like a, a tuning thing, right? It helps tune the Christian to eternity rather than just temporal time. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I also know people who will only read the book of Daniel and only read the book of Revelation to figure out like, 
yeah, the exact moment of when the end times will be. Should they buy day. property? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, uh, or should they be putting a billboard on 35 mm-hmm. saying the end is nigh? 2016, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. That Mayan calendar mm-hmm. ends? Yeah. 2012. 2012, and people had sold everything and were mm-hmm. hanging out in just a motorhome, like waiting for the moment when it came. <gasps> I, I wonder if the Mayan calendar is just ended because they ran out of rock, yep. right? Yep. I think that's got to be really, what it is. Yeah. Like, you only make a calendar so, so big if you're a Mayan. <laughs> that's true. And 2012 is a long, long ways away. Yeah. They'll, work, they'll figure good. it out later, is what they thought. Yeah, we yeah. only do, what, a year out? <laughs> and the Mayans had it up till 2012? Those guys were thinking ahead. <laughs> they were very confident in their dynasty. Um, but I think that it is important on all Christians to keep those four ba- ways in balance. Um, I, we, we live, sort of the modern context, we are um, allergic to authority mm. and church authority. Um, Don't tell me what to <laughs> yeah. feel. Um, and very much we would, uh, um, I mean, I even see it slip, slipping into our, our vernacular when we do Bible study. Well, you know, to me, when I read this, it says that, like, God is my father. Mm. Not a false theological statement, but... Um, uh, it eschews other It eschews other things, and then, and then when, when someone sort of starts something with, well, to me, the Bible says, you, if they're mistaken on something, you have to... If you say, well, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't say that, mm-hmm. um, now you're in a question of authority. You've, so you've sort of gone from John to Peter. Um, and, and I think just sort of we as modern people don't like... Peter, we don't like the idea the moral, of the of like there is a there is a orthodoxy to the faith that that um, we need to be pulled into, um, so that if we begin to sort of go off onto the fringes of orthodoxy um, and slip into a personal um, maybe sort of moral deism that we don't uh, that we that we can be pulled back into sort of actual life of the church because because um, it's dangerous. It gets, I've had students ask. You know, why can't I just decide who God is for me? And I was like, well, first, he's an actual person, and he might have something to say about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you, you, Graham Donaldson, don't just get to decide who I am to you. That's right. right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm an actual person, and I had, would have things to say about that. But secondly, when you reinvent the universe that way, when you invent who God is, you can, like, you basically unhook your chain mm-hmm. from the shore and set yourself out to the storms, and, and you can do whatever you want. And then you've it might feel the, good, but it might put your life in real peril. And you've cast the universe in your own image, which is, which is idolatry. So uh, we, can, uh, we can very easily slip into turning the Scripture into just a reinforcement mechanism of our own, of, things we already of our things that we already believe, as opposed to something that is supposed to break us down and build us back up uh, in, in God's word, yeah. God's image. That's really good. Um, yeah. All right, I, I think we might need to get close to yeah, wrapping up here because we're kind of under a time crunch. But really fast, if you're going to read Dante's Inferno or Dante's Divine, Divine Comedy, he writes with these four senses in mind. So every scene he has, or at least most of them, will have a literal level what's actually happening while he's talking to Italians in hell. <laughs> and then an allegorical thing, well, they are being swept about by winds because it has to do with the way that we interact with lust, right? Lust sweeps us off our feet and carries us around and with you know, and we lose control. And then the moral level, like sometimes we try to cover up our sin. Like Dante speaks to them and they kind of give him this goofy story that kind of shades over what their actual sin. And so the moral is maybe maybe once you're caught, don't, you know, shade over what actually happened. And then the anagogical, which is looking towards the, the far future. So his, his whole divine comedy is a 
anagogical work, right? Mm -hmm. It's looking towards our eternal future. And so maybe the first entrance into hell, lust is dangerous because it's one of the first things that can sweep you off the path. And that can happen. Mm -hmm. if, I'm, if I'm doing the four correctly, I'm still a little shaky yeah. on them. And, that's, and, some, and sometimes the Divine Comedy is called uh, Aquinas put diverse. And so this also is all in the Summa uh, Theologiae or uh, Theologica, depending on what you want to call it. So this is uh, uh, part one, book one, article 10. This is like at the very get-go, Aquinas answers this question of whether in Holy Scripture a word may have several senses. And that's where he affirms these four ways of reading mm. Scripture. So it's there too. Um, Augustine had a form of it which Aquinas is pulling in to, um, yeah, to affirm here. And then Dante was just a, a big uh, Thomas Aquinas fan as well. Cool. So, listener, you now have a task set before you. Uh, take out your Bible. Uh, yeah. Spend some time going through and looking for these principles, building up uh, these theological statements for yourself. Go through and look at the moral and anagogical reading. Uh, spend some time. You have now been given wonderful tools uh, and uh, different ways that you can tackle uh, reading not only Dante, but also uh, God's Word. And uh, it can only bring profit if you go at it with a honest heart. That's good. So there's, a, there's a couple of things I thought we might add to our podcast at some point. You guys can shut me down on this, but we, we keep commonplace books, which are just a record of the quotes in books that we find we like, because everybody reads books and then forgets you know, the good stuff they found in the book. And a commonplace book is a way of just recording that and keeping it with you, like the quotes that have had an influence on you throughout the world and just funny quotes from your friends or mm -hmm. things you think are interesting. So we all keep those. And I was thinking we could, you know, read like maybe a quote with no commentary or very little commentary at the beginning. And then we can add writing tips at the end, like little, little like here's how to write good mm -hmm. things we I didn't learn in high school and might be beneficial to the listener. What do you think? Sure. And do we still want to do errors at the end too? Things we got classical stuff we got wrong. Classical I think we, we bring wrong. that up when we've actually find something. When we know we've got stuff wrong. Well, okay. my my first thing was I hit the wrong buttons on the <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the program last, and screwed up an entire episode. The last so time we did this topic, <laughs> that one's on me. All right, Hannenberg, would you want to uh, close us off with something from your commonplace book? Ah, sure. All right, let me. I didn't have anything in mind. Oh, I probably okay. should have thought of something before I before I did that. Let's it definitely looks like you're flipping through blank pages right now. Okay, never mind. Well, I have a lot of blank pages. Okay, good. I was just looking for the back. I thought you were about to like make up a quote. So says Melville. Uh, so this one is from East of Eden, and he's talking about the Cain and Abel story and how the story of Cain is one of the deepest stories man has. And he says, and of course, people are only interested in themselves. If a story is not about the hearer, he will not listen. And here I make a rule. A great and lasting story is about everyone or it will not last. Kind of cool. That's good. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, feedback, fan art, cat uh, pictures, cat, cat pictures, yeah. uh, anything, please email us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. Um, you can visit us on classicalstuff.net um, and you can download us on whatever device or whatever, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Google Play and we're on iTunes. iTunes. You probably know that if you're <laughs> listening to this. <laughs> it's probably a good... You know, well, I've had guess. some people say that they listen through the websites. Really? Yeah. We're doing that We've too. got Spotify too. Oh, no, 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 we, no, we, don't. we don't. We're working no, on that. Spotify hasn't gotten back to us. Come on, Sweden. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you.